You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Episode 121, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. Today's a solo episode. We're going to be discussing COVID-19. We haven't talked about it for, I don't know, four or five weeks, I suppose, now. And we're now in the midst of, really, in the heat of the vaccine rollout, the point where the, almost the entire public has now had access to it in the United States, or at least within the next week or so, it's going to be available to most people uh, if they want to at least start working to schedule appointments. Compared to when we first talked about this last year in the summer, uh, we learned a lot, and there's still a lot we don't know. And I think it's uh, probably useful to go over what to expect, where we are now, what we've learned. And I think that to try and sort of synthesize this and get a better feel for really what, what we're doing. And I think it's important to look at this now because, you know, there could be another pandemic around the corner. Uh, but certainly at least have an idea for how we're going to go approach the next few months or years. But before we start, I want to talk about the sponsor for today's show, which is Contract Diagnostics. It's a firm that's 100% dedicated to physician contract reviews. They provide a service that all physician families will need at least one time in their careers, most likely a few additional times as well. I love this company as they've helped over 10,000 physicians understand not only what they are signing, but what risks they are taking for their family. All contracts reviewed by an in-house attorney and presented in a simplified way back to you. Using custom documentation, compensation data, and times outside normal business hours, they make it easy for you. All packages are flat price, so you know what you will pay up front. Residents and fellows can even make interest-free payments over time. So look them up at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contract diagnostics or call 888-574-5526. Be sure to go to theparadox.com slash 121. There you can find the link to the contract diagnostics website, but also to other shows we're going to reference during this episode. There are a lot of things we're going to talk about with COVID-19 and SARS-CoV-2, 
we've discussed it in other shows, and so it's a good way of sort of going back and say, which episode was that that we talked about vitamin D or testing, you know, PCR testing, or the transitional phase of COVID-19. So those are all, I think, useful resources. You can go to theparadox.com slash 121. There you can find that information. As always, I'd always encourage you to go to your podcast player, whatever you use, if you use the Apple Podcast Player or a Stitcher or some other podcast player, leave a review. Five stars is always appreciated. Make sure you share the show with your friends. And if you hear something today that you think is really important, you think this is this COVID information, my aunt or my uncle or someone needs to hear it, you can always link either through the show notes page, if you know, which is again the paradox.com slash one twenty one. If someone you know, doesn't listen to podcasts, they can listen to audio version there. There's also a link to the YouTube version. You can find it as well um, on that page. If someone just has a computer access and they don't listen to podcasts, like you know your grandpa or something like that. But I think today is going to be a good assimilation of what we've learned, what we know, what we still have yet to learn, and we'll probably learn over the next couple months, and some things we probably won't know for a couple of years, maybe even a couple of decades. So anyway, I think that's all going to be included in the show. So I think it's going to be a pretty useful information, sort of a synopsis, and probably really helpful for people who you know, follow it or they're, I mean, well, how can you not follow COVID, right? <laughs> but certainly for people who have sort of some questions and maybe things don't make some sense to you. This is, I think, a good way of just kind of getting all the information we know as of this time, and I'm recording this on March 24th of 2021. Anyway, I think it's just a good synopsis, and I'm going to try to keep it simple. I try and keep things so that it's understandable to people who are uh, not in the medical field, but in also enough scientific stuff that people who are in medicine certainly can find this helpful. I find myself talking about COVID all the time, <laughs> whether I'm with friends or family, uh, coworkers. Even if you don't want to talk about it, it's all around, right? And you're always dealing with the effects of it, whether it's closures, restrictions, whatever. So I think this is very helpful. Now, my caveat before I begin is if you've not listened to the show much and you're just stopping in for the first time, uh, I'm someone who's nuanced, and so I'm unlikely to make certain claims that I can't make. I'll try and be honest about my conjecture. I'll try and be honest about my opinions and try and tell you, you know, what I do and don't know. I mean... I'll be honest up front, I think, you know, you have to have a lot of humility in this whole process because there's so much that is unknown. There's more we know now, but I think there's a lot that we just don't know about this virus. And no matter what kind of expert you are, epidemiologist, immunologist, virologist, whatever, there's so much more to learn. There's so much more to know as far as how it works. No one's lived through a pandemic and that's in the world right now that I'm aware of. I mean, unless you're really old, uh, we're around during the Spanish flu in the 19 teens. So it's all new to everybody and exactly how this works. And also the world is significantly different today than it was in the 19-teens during World War I. Right? If you think about it, how much international travel was there? Well, there was international travel, but not to most parts of the world or all the world. And certainly the way you traveled and the speed with which you traveled is significantly changed from then. Right now you can get to anywhere else in the world within a day, pretty much. Before, it would take weeks or months sometimes to get to certain places in the world. So the ability for any sort of pandemic to spread was significantly different. It doesn't mean it didn't spread, but it was different. And so I think we have to take everything into sort of account uh, when we're trying to explain what's going on. So if you're looking for someone who is anti-vaccine or pro-vaccine or whatever, you're not going to really find it here. I'm a nuanced person. I'm going to provide what I think is a nuanced opinion of the, the vaccine. I hope an honest one and one without much of an agenda. At least I don't feel one way in particular about the virus or whether the pandemic is real or not real, whatever uh, people want to sort of say. I'm just going to try and kind of just shoot straight. 
and hopefully it'll be useful for you. Okay, so let's begin. COVID-19 has been with us for a little over a year. SARS-CoV-2 is the virus that actually causes the symptoms of COVID-19, which has caused respiratory problems and eventually ICU stays and potentially death for some, generally elderly. But let's talk about what we know, and then we'll talk about what we think we know, and then I think where we're going. What we know right now is that there are a lot of people who've had COVID. Now, you may quibble about overcounting or undercounting, but there's, without a doubt, a ton of people who've had COVID-19, or at least an infection of SARS-CoV-2, where they may have had an immune response that was so subtle they weren't able to perceive having symptoms. In the United States, which is what we'll focus on today, probably 20 to 30% of the population has had it. Now, I know tons of people have had it. I think most people know lots of people have had it. Many of us know people who got really sick. Some people know people who have died. As of the recording here, there are 540,500 people who have passed away from COVID-19, according to the CDC numbers, and 29.7 million cases of COVID-19. Now, as we know, there are far more people who've had it than who've actually qualified as cases. Cases are objectively positive tests uh, or of either through PCR or antigen testing. It's possible that people have been counted multiple times. It's possible people haven't been counted. In fact, that's almost a certainty. Whether we talk about the numbers or not and quibble about them, even if it's off by one or two million, either way, a lot of people have had COVID-19. A lot of people have missed work. A lot of people have gotten sick and gone to the hospital. On the bright side is we have a lot of vaccinations. And so you can look at this infection one of two ways. One is you can get immunity from getting infected, which is like most uh, viruses. And the other is that you can get it through a vaccination. Likely, because COVID-19, as we talked about in previous episodes, will be with us the rest of our lives. It will never go anywhere. I should probably specify SARS-CoV-2. It has been able to replicate and be spread by mice and mink. There are probably other mammals that will have this. Anyway, as long as we even have those two, unless we get rid of all the mice and mink in the world, even if we eradicated COVID-19 from humans, we'll still get COVID-19. So as long as SARS-CoV-2 has a way to stay alive outside humans, it'll always be present. It'll always create immune challenges from humans. So if that's the case, we have to kind of plan on that and have to have some sort of immunity. You can get immunity in one of two ways, either through a vaccine or through natural immunity or natural infection. Likely, if we look use our previous exposures to other coronaviruses, we have four endemic coronaviruses that have been with us for at least 100 plus years that cause common colds. There are, of course, a ton of other virus classes like rhinoviruses, adenoviruses, parainfluenza viruses, other ones that cause colds. And that's generally speaking, just upper respiratory infections, runny nose, sneezing, coughing, some sort of occasionally wheezing. It can get a little bit into a lower respiratory system and can set you up for secondary infections, which can get you really sick. Um, but basically, it's a cold. We hopefully get to the point where SARS-CoV-2, we have enough baseline immunity that it's not going to keep us from getting infected and maybe even spreading to other people, but that we don't get really sick, right? That's the key. Now, does it take one infection? Does it take two infections? Does it take three infections to get to that point? Hard to say. Probably depends on who you are, what your underlying health conditions are, your age. It's probably the most important thing. So that's why children generally are do really well with this because for whatever reason, kids can get these things and they can do okay. Now, this may change with the variants. It seems like the B117 variant, which is first identified in Britain, but you know, it's everywhere at this point in the United States, and it's becoming the dominant variant, causes a little bit more severe 
infections in kids, they're more likely to spread it, we think. Hard to say for sure, but that seems to be what the data says. Anyway, we're going to get it, and you're going to get it multiple times. Now, usually with your immune system, once you get infection, you then have some sort of latent immunity, either with the antibodies, or if your antibodies wane, you still have some memory cells or T-cell immunity that persists that will give you, prevent really bad symptoms, but you might still get sick for a little while. And so that's kind of our expectation with coronaviruses. I think with SARS-CoV-2, it's probably the same. You'll probably have really good immunity for a little while, and then it's going to wane. Probably since it's so prevalent right now, the infections, and they will be for quite some time. I mean, you're going to, even if we get most people vaccinated in the United States, let's say, uh, we're still going to have a large portion of the world that's not going to be vaccinated. They're still going to be spreading the SARS-CoV-2. If that's the case, you're going to get immune challenges all the time and reintroduction into your populations. So we're going to probably continue to get challenged. So you may still have some antibody protection, or you may just have very, um, or, you know, minimal antibody protection, but you're still going to have some sort of immune response. So you're probably going to be less sick. Again, how many times you, these little booster doses, essentially, you need? Hard to say. But I think, you know, it. I think it suggests that we probably won't need boosters, is my guess, uh, for a while, as long as we know that this vaccine counts as a natural infection uh, exposure uh, equivalent uh, to like B117, which it seems to be, it seems to be just as effective as that versus regular variants, for whatever that means, as there are probably thousands of variants of SARS-CoV-2. So that being the case, we just have all these infections, you're going to have some immunity, you're going to be okay. To give you an idea of what it's like right now, this is as, as of mid-March, March, March uh, 25th, I guess that's late March now, over 65, we have almost 70% of the U.S. population has been vaccinated, or 38.1 million. People fully vaccinated mean they've had two doses, if it's the Pfizer or the Moderna, that's 23.5 million, or 43%. The total population in the United States, people who have been vaccinated at least once, again, one in, uh, injection, is 25.3%, and the entire population been fully vaccinated is 13.7%. Now, if you just look at people over the 18, age of 18, uh, you have numbers of 32.4% and 17.6%. Every day, more people are getting vaccinated. Every day, more people are getting infected. The numbers of people who actually have some sort of immunity to COVID-19 is hard to say. SARS-CoV-2 immunity is probably somewhere around these numbers. If we say we have 20 to 30% of the U.S. population who have had it, and my assumption is 20 to 30% of people who've been vaccinated previously had it, which these are just estimations, that we have anywhere between 57 and 51% of the population who have some sort of immunity to SARS-CoV-2. Not enough to prevent outbreaks from time to time. Still plenty of room in order for people to get exponential spread for something that seems to be pretty infectious as SARS-CoV-2 is. Yes, there are people who don't get it all the time in the same household. We can't explain this. Kids tend to get a little bit less. But either way, in the United States, we are getting close to having herd immunity for whatever that means, or at least the point where we're not going to have overrun hospitals. If you look at the numbers of people who are over the age of 65, it is encouraging that 70% has, nearly 70% has been immunized. But you also have to remember that of that, seven, that still leaves 30% of people who are the highest risk for getting very sick from SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19, are those 30% people who said, you know what, I had it, I don't need to worry about getting the vaccine, maybe. My guess is it's probably just a combination of people who just have chosen not to get the vaccine, and some people probably, for whatever reason, haven't been able to access it, although pretty much most places in the country have been opened up for the elderly, 
And, you know, there are people who may have trouble accessing and getting online appointments or whatever. But for the most part, I think that number is pretty solid and it hasn't changed much in about the last week or two, which suggests to me that we're kind of hitting the point where more people are not going to get vaccinated of that age group. I suspect we'll see this with the rest of the age groups in the United States as well. And this will be a big problem when you want to try and get people vaccinated to very high levels because we can't vaccinate children at this point. At some point, we'll probably have the vaccine that will be approved down to kids. But at this point, it's not the case, except down to age 16. Maybe by the fall, it'll you'll be um, down to 12 or maybe even less. But at this point, right now, we're stuck just being able to vaccinate adults, which is about 75 or 80 percent of the population in the United States. So if you vaccinate everybody, you're still maybe not even at herd immunity, unless you add in people who've been infected, and assuming some of those are kids, maybe then you could say we're not going to we're going to prevent these big surges in the hospitals. So what does all this mean? This means that within about a couple months, and you're already starting to see this in the United States, we're going to have vaccine availability for everybody. And everybody who will want to be vaccinated will have been vaccinated, my guess, is by the end of June. Now, that may not be with both doses. Some people might still be in the series and need a second dose. But I think all the people who want to get vaccinated will be vaccinated by that point, which means at that point that we can really pretty much remove most of the restrictions. Because at that point, what are you doing? You're keeping things locked down. You're making these mandates. For what reason? You want to try and prevent hospitals from getting overrun. Well, that at that point, even if you have 70% of the population vaccinated, you're probably not going to get surges so high that you're going to have problems with hospital beds. You're still going to have quite a few people who are in the hospital with COVID-19. You're probably going to have people on the ventilators. You're still going to have some deaths from it. But you're not going to get the over massive, overwhelming response of people just getting pouring into the hospitals. Now, there may be reinfections and things like that happen with new variants. It's possible there's some concern with the variant in Brazil, a P1. Maybe that makes it worse, and maybe people continue to get sick who've been sick before. I think that's probably a bit overblown. I think people may get infected. As we mentioned before, you may get infected with SARS-CoV-2 with a different variant. And this is probably why you can get the same variant coronavirus infections again and again, even as you know, normally. So you get OC43, is a common variant. And every couple of years, it kind of comes to your community, gets a bunch of people sick, and then it just sort of washes away, probably because we lost our natural innate immunity to it enough that we get sick, but don't get like deathly ill. Probably exposure to this or, you know, a vaccine, I suppose, would be the same thing. But as long as you get an immune response when you're young, at the first or second exposures, your chance of getting deathly ill from this sort of thing when you're older is extremely rare. And that's probably why these coronaviruses are extremely benign for us now. And there's probably some evolutionary sort of things at work where the virus even becomes more benign as it gets uh, further out uh, from its initial uh, origination. Let's talk real briefly about lockdowns and mandates. I think when it comes to infectious diseases and the spreading of aerosolized viruses, time and distance are the most important things. So if you're close to someone who's sick for a long period of time and you're close to them, you're going to have a high level chance of getting infected. If you're around lots of people who are infected, you're going to have an even higher percent chance. If you're around them for just a second or you're walking by where there's a good airflow, like you're outside or something, you're less likely to get infected. These are not things that should be complicated. They should not be controversial. If you're wearing a mask, your chance of getting infected or spreading infection is less. It's not zero. If you're in a room with certain types of masks, you're at higher or low, higher likelihood of getting infected than other types of masks. But either way, you're going to improve your odds of not getting infected, but it is not zero. It's probably not even close to zero. 
So the only way to avoid getting infected is to avoid people. Well, we can't really conduct our lives without by avoiding people. We can avoid certain situations in certain areas. You can avoid, obviously, people who are sick. The problem with this virus is lots of people who are not sick or showing signs of illness may still be infectious. I think that's pretty clear that there's a percentage of that. Hard to know exactly what percentage, but anyway, that's definitely the case. So, when you have a mandate or um, a mask mandate or lockdowns or these sorts of restrictions, I think it causes a lot of problems. If you look at the graphs of different states, how they handle things, and I think it's best just to look at the United States, you don't really see much correlation between when mandates go in effect, when they're rescinded, and changes in sort of infection. I think we can, we can imagine that we see bumps that happen at certain times, but it's pretty random. In fact, if anything, you say you can just see a regional sweep of this virus that moves across the country or through states and things like that. I know I live in Michigan, and we definitely saw it spread from the, south, the north part down into the south back in November. We just saw it coming because we know it hadn't hit really hard initially, SARS-CoV-2, in the UP, in the Upper Peninsula or northern Michigan. It had pretty much concentrated in the Detroit area. And yes, every other area had had times with uh, SARS-CoV-2, but never got really bad. But eventually we got hammered pretty hard when it came done from, uh, from the UP. But you could almost see it as a wave in looking at through the country. It's going through the Dakotas. It kind of goes into Wisconsin, northern Michigan. It kind of comes down throughout you know, Minnesota, all the way down to us, into Ohio, and just kind of moves. It's not like one organism, right? But, it's, but if you think about it, it's just moving through basically environments, uh, you know, ecosystems, and that, which is our, our respiratory tracts. <laughs> and as it finds more hosts that work, it just kind of moves in that way, and it's just it moves in sort of like a sign pattern, like traffic moves. Uh, you know, you have you'll be traveling on a freeway, and you'll stop, and you'll go five miles an hour, ten miles an hour, thirty, and suddenly you're going highway speeds, and you'll slow down again. And the traffic, if you ask people who are traffic engineers, uh, that it moves much like a sine wave. And so you'll have times when you're stopped for no reason, and yet the times you're moving full speed on the same road, and there seems to be no rhyme or reason to it, except you could you could explain it by saying, well, it's because. Some people break, and as they break, people, people behind you break more, and then it causes this sort of chain reaction. Well, something sort of like that with viruses. I imagine this, this behaves similarly in the sense that you have people who say, oh my gosh, there's an infection, I need to take care of myself and avoid people and whatever, and so they take, make measures to avoid things, and they make different decisions. The first people who encounter the wave, they don't know what's coming, and they're just sort of doing their thing, and they get hit by it. And there's just, you know, happenstance and people who are more susceptible and whatever. But the point is, the implementation of masks and mandates and all those things, although they are good ideas, meaning it's best if there's a large brewing pandemic in your your area, or let's call it an epidemic, that it's best to just avoid people as much as possible, to take precautions, to not share space with them, don't do close talking, wear masks when you can. And then when it's, when it's gone, then you don't need any of those sort of restrictions it's incumbent upon public health officials, maybe locally, to tell you when it's coming or going or whatever. But those are the sorts of things you need to be aware of. So they actually work. And so when people say mass mandates don't work, it's true that the mandates don't work. The mandate itself alone does not make anyone behave differently. I mean, I guess if we had a totalitarian country and you're like shooting people who are violating it, maybe then people would have higher compliance. But it's still a combination of what we would perceive as low risk decisions. But if it's a low risk decision in a situation that's high risk, like let's say you say, oh, I'm just going to go to breakfast with these people. I hang out with them all the time. It's sort of in my bubble. Well, you don't know what those people have been doing. And if they happen to get exposed somewhere, you go to small exposure to like, you know, going to breakfast for them. 
and suddenly they bring the infection to you, well, you didn't really do anything wrong per se, but just because it's more prevalent in the community, more people are likely to have it, your bubble may just be more vulnerable than it would have been before. It's not complicated. But the point is, is that the mandates, the lockdowns, seem to have no bearing on whether it prevents the spread or changes the spread or anything like that. Yes, if people change their behavior and move around differently and interact with people differently, that it absolutely has an effect. And if it's only through mandates that you can make people change their behavior, then it would matter. We know, though, from looking at California, which is one of the most heavily restricted states, to something like South Dakota and Florida, Texas, these are actually more regional epidemics and that it doesn't really change much as far as what happens. And so I think my opinion now is that the lockdowns are unnecessary. They could still have the same suggestions for things you should do, and it'll be just as effective without being so debilitating and destructive for businesses and schools and the like when they try and go back and forth between these sorts of um, mandates. It's entirely possible that mask mandates maybe make things worse in the sense that as soon as you lift a mandate restriction, everybody starts going back to risky behavior when maybe it's a little too soon, right? Or that people defy it or the people go out of their way to take their masks off at certain times or they're fiddling with their masks more and they're more likely to get infected. I don't know. But it's entirely possible that these mandates don't work for that reason as well. There are a lot of things that we think we do that make sense. But if you look at the data, it's really hard to look at any sort of graph of any country and say that something worked and something didn't work. It is. It is, seems to be that virus and infection rates are very much independent of anything sort we can figure out through time and space. You know, the Super Bowl comes, there's not really a big outbreak. Something happens like eight weeks later. Well, you can say it's due to protests or something like that, but probably not. It's probably just a random event. And initially, I thought it was going to be more affected by what people are out doing, but it probably has a little. We probably have a lot less effect than we do. I think fundamentally. Masks are a proxy for us feeling like there's something we can do. We have some control over this virus. When ultimately, we have no control over this virus. I listen to Michael Holzerholm's podcast. I listen to TWIV. I lost, there's lots of other people who have opinions that are different than mine. Uh, but uh, Holzerholm makes a good comment. He said, we're not guiding this tiger. We're riding it. And it's absolutely true. We're not the ones who have any control over this virus. And wearing masks or not wearing masks is not going to fundamentally change things in the sense that having mandates and closing things down is going to radically change things. It will make you safer on the margin. It makes things different, but it probably doesn't change whether the virus is going to sweep through your community or not. You can't prevent it from coming by wearing masks any more than than not wearing masks would make it worse. I think, you know, on the margins, it does have an effect. The mandates ultimately, fundamentally, don't make much of a difference. That doesn't mean you shouldn't wear a mask. That means you should absolutely wear a mask to protect yourself and to protect others nearby. But let's not get hung up on the fact that these masks and mandates and lockdowns actually are working effectively. What is going to work is either people getting infected or people getting vaccinated. That's the only way we're going to get to a point where people aren't going to get sick from SARS-CoV-2. There is no way we're going to eradicate it. There's no way we can control it like we do in other countries like in Australia or New Zealand. We can't wall off our country and make it a you know open-air prison. There's just no way that can happen. It is ubiquitous in this country. There's no way it's going to stay out. And to do anything else and to say we have to have zero cases or no instance of SARS-CoV-2 is folly. We'll always have it. It's never going to go away. We'll never get to zero cases. We may stop looking for it. We may not care that it happens anymore if it's just causing a cold. 
but we'll always have it. And so any other strategy, I think, is a fool's errand. So to go back a little bit, what we need to do right now is to get people vaccinated as much as they can, as much as they want. If those who choose not to, you're going to get infected. Just know it now. You may say, oh, I'm better off getting infected uh, than actually getting a vaccine. Maybe. Maybe it's a, maybe the infection and the immunity is better. But as I've told people before, I get a flu vaccine not because I'm afraid of dying from the flu. I get a flu vaccine because I don't want to get sick from the flu because getting sick from the flu really sucks. And I really don't like it. I've had it before, even with a vaccine, and I don't get nearly as sick as people who don't get vaccinated. But either way, it makes sense to me to get vaccinated first. And then, you know, the next time I get infected and get with the SARS-CoV-2, I'm not going to get as sick. So it's better to have an immune response either way, but you're going to get it. So your choice, your call. I personally would rather have it the vaccine and then get just a regular illness the next time. And I know I won't be as sick. I think the long range uh, health concerns are very minimal. It doesn't seem like there's any reason to think that this is any different than the other vaccines. I'm not concerned about the flu vaccine either. So, you know, if you're someone who's terrified of vaccines, well, then you don't have to get it. Just know you will get SARS-CoV-2 and you will get infected and, you know, you'll do however you do. I hope the best for you and I hope everything's okay. And, you know, if you're young and healthy, most people are fine. The problem with this country is most of us are not young and healthy. And so I would say outside of getting vaccinated, get yourself in shape, lose some weight. That's the absolute number one risk factor that we don't ever talk about for some reason, which drives me crazy. And then probably vitamin D is a good idea. You can listen to the episode I did with uh, Dr. Thacker in episode 112. I'd encourage you to listen to the other episodes I did with uh, Dave Graham, the most recent one being episode 114, where we talked about the transitional phase as we're sort of moving out of the massive pandemic. He has a different approach for how to open things up. I think what's realistic is that we're going to have everything open by midsummer and we're going to be pretty much back to normal with a continuous amount of cases. I don't know how things will be as far as businesses with mass mandates and things like that, but I think most states will have removed the mandates and it'll be hard to be a state where you have it. I don't know what's going to happen with vaccine passports and all this sort of stuff. The rest of the world is still going to be largely relying on infection, natural infections to get uh, immunity. And that's going to take some time. And that's why initially when I talked to Dave Graham back in the episode nineties, we, we talked about how it's going to be two to five years. It's going to take a long time to get natural infections. If you think about it, it comes to your community and about 15% of people get infected. It then washes away. It then comes back. Another 15% get infected, comes back. Another 15% get infected. Well, you can imagine if it takes, if they come every three to four months, it takes a long time to get to 70, 80% people who have been infected to get a good uh, immune response. And by then, you know, people who originally got infected, well, they can probably uh, transmit it. And then it's going to be, take a long time to get to that, the point where you're not getting a lot of people sick from it. Anyway, the vaccine is going to shortcut that. It's going to bypass it. It's going to make it a lot faster that we're going to get to immunity status where we will all have been exposed at least once. Soon we'll be exposed two, three, four, five times before we uh, leave this earth. And you're going to pretty much have a cold. It's entirely possible that that's not the case. I think it's unlikely. And our experience with other viruses, uh, coronaviruses and other respiratory viruses, is that it, that this will become more benign personally and as a population, but probably more personally than it will be as a population over time. So generations from now, they won't really worry about SARS-CoV-2. It'll be sort of a non-issue. One thing we really need to start talking about in the next few weeks to months is the actual cost of what we're doing as far as public health measures. 
not only for this pandemic, but, you know, for the future ones that are going to spring up, right? I think we all accept the fact that with the increased travel, interconnectedness of our planet, and the proximity to other mammals, like whether it's, you know, meat markets or whatever, uh, there are going to be other pandemics that will happen, or at least infections that will start, and that people will want to react as if it's going to be a pandemic. And we've had this a number of times with Ebola, uh, SARS initially, the SARS-1, which was just SARS at that time. Uh, and so those things are going to happen. We need to be prepared for them, and we need to be prepared and answer the questions today about what we did and whether they worked or didn't. We need to have an honest, really, truly honest discussion about whether lockdowns and the mandates actually work, we need to look at use it with scientific data, and not just what we think, because I could be totally wrong, but when I look at the graphs, it's really hard for me to justify a lot of what we've done. Maybe certain measures do work, and we can prove that. Most of the papers that prove one thing or the other are, um, I think, garbage, and uh, they need to do a better job, <laughs> frankly. And they're not really good scientific papers. Time will t help us with that. But we also need to recognize the true cost of things. Public health officials, their goal is to prevent the spread of disease. Their decision is not on the economic costs, the social costs, all the other sort of costs that are involved in measures that are used to control disease. For instance, you could say, well, we could stop every, any pandemic by certainly just boarding people into rooms uh, and then just delivering them food and water for 12 months and not letting them out of their house. Well, there is for sure a benefit. You'd prevent the spread of disease, almost for sure, although you have to have food distribution centers, etc., and there's going to be some spread there. But for the most part, you would keep diseases to almost zero. But what is the cost of that? Is that cost worth it? There is a social cost, a mental health cost. There are all sorts of costs that are involved with this that we're not considering right now and that we have to sort of focus on these things because if we don't, we're going to make the same mistakes later on. We're going to see that there's been an explosion of mental health problems. We're already seeing this in adolescents and the young people. You can imagine it's easy for me because I go to work, but for someone who is forced to work at home, they're single, they live by you know they live by themselves and they're young. The social aspect of life is really important, and to take that away from someone is really really hard. It causes a lot of mental anguish, and you do it for a long period of time, and then you don't let people see faces, you don't let people see smiles, you don't let people see normal human interactions. Yes, some places they wear masks more frequently than others, but it's one thing to have a couple of people walking around wearing masks because they have a cold, and you know maybe that's a change that will happen that when you show up sick for work or for school, you're expected to wear a mask. So you keep people from getting as sick from respiratory problems. But not having ability to see people fully causes some real emotional problems. And I don't think there's any question about that. Anxiety is worse. And we just need to kind of think about the cost. Now, maybe we think the costs are worth it, depending on what it is that we're stopping. But we're not having a real discussion. We're not having discussion on really what's happened to children when it comes to education. Because there's been, a, I don't think anyone would say that the education has been adequate or okay, who has had virtual or hybrid schooling or something else. Kids are really struggling uh, academically. And we have to really talk about, you know, how do you do things? Because if, if this happens again, we can't do what we did this time. It just is not reasonable. We're, we can't sacrifice the education and the lives of these kids every time we worry about some sort of infection. I, I don't know what to say, uh, except to say that we need to talk about the costs honestly. And we have not had honest costs about it. We just yell fear, panic, and then just go ahead and do whatever we want to do. It's a real problem. And finally, I think, you know, when it comes to our governance, it, as far as our country goes, and this is simply my opinion, I think it's something we need to consider. 
whether we give so much power to our government to control all aspects of our lives. It always concerns me because, yeah, you may think it's great when it's your person in charge, but when it's not your person in charge or when they're doing something you don't agree with or you think is you know, not helpful, it's harmful, uh, do you, are you okay giving away this much power and this much control of your life economically, you know, religious, spiritually, uh, emotionally, personally? I mean, the amount of freedoms uh, that we have traded in order to prevent the spread of the disease, which, again, I tell you, it, I'm, I find it hard to see massive differences uh, based on what we've done for closures. I could be entirely wrong. It's hard to prove the negative. It's hard to prove that it would have been way better or way worse if, it, if things had gone differently as far as uh, restrictions that were pla- put in place. But either way, I think these are things we need to talk about, and we need to really consider whether we want to have those sorts of discussions. I think at a minimum, and I mentioned before I'm libertarian, but really you can't have a legislature that's in session and then have an executive that's just operating as if the legislature is not in session. You can't, that's not an emergency. I can't imagine how you can call that emergency and you certainly can't have emergency powers for multiple months. It doesn't make any sense because in that sense, we always are emergencies in this country because there's always problems. So anyway, that's my little bit of commentary about governance. So, those are just things I think we need to think about, especially as we move forward in the future. But I hope everyone stays well and help stay safe. So there are a lot of things, concepts I covered in this show that I didn't really go into great detail. We talked about testing very briefly, um, but it's a good episode with testing where you understand PCR testing with uh, Kevin McKernan. That's in episode 116. All the episodes are done with Dave Graham. I'd recommend that episode with vitamin D. That's episode 112. All these will be linked at the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 121. I highly recommend you go to that. Give this to your friends. Give this to your family members. I think this episode kind of encapsulates everything, tells us where we are, where we're going. I think it's encouraging. I think we've still got this next wave to go through because we're not going to have enough people vaccinated. And so we're just going to have to deal with that. My hope is that more young people will be getting it than older people. And so we won't have a serious problems with hospital infrastructure problems like we did back in November, where it was really a problem. We got through it just fine, but it was a strain on all the hospitals. I don't think we'll get to that point again, but we'll see. We won't know for another two weeks probably, but clearly uh, we're feeling it now in Michigan. I know we're just, you know, the canary in the bill in, in the mind at this point, right? And so if we're getting in that next wave, the rest of the states will at some point get it as that, once again, as that virus just spreads sort of like a blob throughout the country and it's going to move from region to region. And oh, by the way, we're on spring break in Michigan next week or so. So we'll be bringing our our COVID-2 to your community. So you're welcome. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode. Please make sure you leave a a review and share it with your friends. Thanks and be safe. So I want to thank again Contract Diagnostics for making this podcast possible. This is a company that specializes in contract reviews. Specialization is something we can all appreciate here. So again, when you or your family have contract needs, give them a call. They'll help you understand your contract and make sure it lines up with your interests and protect the assets that you covet most, your time and family. Find them at drpodcastnetwork.com slash contractdiagnostics or by phone at 888-574-5526. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash theparadox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.